It was 1971, and in the month of April that year, Maxim Furek tells us, President Richard Nixon ended the blockade against the People's Republic of China. 200,000 anti-Vietnam War protesters marched in the shadow of the Washington Monument. Concert promoter Bill Graham closed down the Fillmore East and West, and the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the use of busing to achieve racial desegregation. Nationally, this two-minute and 49-second record was introduced by celebrity disc jockey Casey Kasem. Timothy appeared on his American Top 40 countdown as the highest debuting record for the week of April 11, 1971. And as Maxim Furek argues, the tune Timothy was part of that heady cultural vortex. Ever so slowly, the song reached critical mass, and then, like a nuclear chain reaction, exploded. Maxime Furek, a music journalist, has long been fascinated by this song and that explosion in cultural terms, but also for what the tune reveals about the workings of the record industry back in the day, about eerie parallels between the song and a mine disaster in Shepton here in Schuylkill County, not to mention the fact that the band at the heart of the story, The Boys, B-U-O-Y-S, came from his backyard, northeastern Pennsylvania. You might say there's enough material there for two books, and Furek has indeed written them. His study, Shepton, The Myth, Miracle, and Music, was released in 2015, and in 2021, Sunbury Press issued Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy. It's a close examination of the history of the controversial song, Timothy. Trapped in a mine that had caved in and everyone knows the only ones left was Joe and me and Tim. When they broke through to pull us free, the only ones left to tell the tale was Joe and me. Timothy, Timothy, where on earth did you go? Timothy, Timothy. God, why don't I know? Furek writes, the plaintive song combined elements of a mining disaster with the enigmatic hint of cannibalism. Because many assumed that Timothy was about the Shepton disaster, that fictitious and baseless interpretation, in this writer's opinion, spread throughout the patches like a black pestilence. That introduction comes from an art scene feature with Maxim Furek that we aired in May of 2022. This week, one year later, we welcomed Furek back to the WVIA studios to talk about his new book, Coal Region Hoodoo, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit. Among those tales is the saga of the Shepton Mine disaster in 1963 in Schuylkill County, told freshly 
and as part of an overall tapestry of events and trends that raise questions, inspire movies and articles, and even research studies. There will be a gathering of authors from the region in Freeland, just outside of Hazleton tomorrow, with signings and readings and more. Maxine Furek will be on hand, and we've drawn some highlights from the conversation we had here on Wednesday as a preview. You are someone who is conversant and skilled, and you have interests in many different disciplines. So we have this book, which builds on an interest that you have in the paranormal, Mm -hmm. but you also have been a music journalist. You've also been someone who's worked with psychology and addictions. And so it's neat to have this book because it's a culmination of one of those Mm -hmm. threads. Tell us about those early days when you were watching Twilight Zone and those sorts of shows How did those things come into your life? Yeah. What I'd like to do, Erica, if I may, I'd like to just read the introduction to Coleridge and Hoodoo because that sort of explains it all. I mean, that really gives it all away. But I'm a baby boomer. You know, we were born between 46 and 64. And this was us. I mean, I'm not unique in the fact that, like, I'm just, you know, really have an affinity for science fiction and horror movies and all that. But let let me just read this. This is the introduction. As an introduction, please consider that I've been preparing to write this book for most of my life. As a member of the idealistic baby boomer generation, I have received the equivalent of a doctorate of education degree in the paranormal sciences. And then I go on to explain. My coursework consisted of some of the best television ever created, The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, and Thriller, supplemented with a heavy dose of science fiction and horror that included the classic masterpieces, The Thing from Another World, The Day the Earth Stood Still, War of the Worlds, Them, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Abominable Snowman, The Blob, and The Time Machine. So this is my introduction, and uh, I contend that I'm not unique in that respect, that I was raised on this exciting interesting, you know, palette of of science fiction and and horror, as were my uh, fellow baby boomers. And, uh, you know, we've had that in our heads and, you know, we have that knowledge and that interest and that fascination. I start Corrigan Hoodoo off with Night of the Living Dead, but I contend that it wasn't so much a zombie movie. You know, ostensibly it's a zombie movie that begat a lot of other things like The Walking Dead. But I contend that it was a sociological take on the upheaval, the, the social upheaval that we were experiencing in 1968. The Tet Offensive, and remember General Westmoreland said, don't worry, every single province in South Vietnam is secure. We had the Tet Offensive, every single province in South Vietnam was overrun. We had North Korea capturing the Pueblo. Uh, we had Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated We had the Easter Sunday riots where over 100 American cities were burnt and torched because of just the horror, the the anger, the shock, especially by African-Americans that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And then we had the Chicago Convention, and that pitted protesters against the National Guard. That was when Mayor Daley banned the song Street Fighting Man by the Stones, you know, so that the art and uh, the culture, everything became intermixed and... So I start the book off with Night of the Living Dead, looking at it two different ways. 
I talk about fear. I talk about Jung and Freud, why we like to be afraid, why we go to horror movies. And then we get into the paranormal. But before I do get into the paranormal, I set the stage. And uh, so I think I cast uh, a wide net. But again, it's all Pennsylvania-centric, and it's all northeastern Pennsylvania, coal region-centric. Tell us what is hoodoo. Right, yeah. Hoodoo could be, as I use it, could be both a blessing or a curse. And when you take a look at the Shepton mining disaster of 1963, you know, I asked myself, I mean, why is it that two of the miners were rescued? They were extricated. You know, they got the blessing. And then the other miner was missing. We don't even know what happened to him. And, and on, on top of that, there were horrible allegations that there was cannibalism, you know, that they ate him. So we don't know what happened. Why did he get the curse? But uh, hoodoo comes from voodoo. The, there's an actual uh, West African religion called voodoo that mixed with Catholicism. And, you know, you'll find that in Louisiana. It's very rich and has just all kinds of tradition and everything. But uh, hoodoo is sort of a variation of that. It could be a religion, but not always. But it could be, you know, used as either a blessing or a curse. One thing I, I do want to say, you know, the re I have two chapters in Co-Region Hoodoo about Bigfoot. One's the Bigfoot Enigma and then the Bigfoot Hypotheses trying to figure out what exactly this, this thing is. And then also with UFOs, UAPs, I have two chapters, and one of which is the Kecksburg crash of December 1965, which is the Pennsylvania equivalent to Roswell. But the reason I have that in the book is because Pennsylvania is reputed to be number three as far as sightings of Bigfoot and UFOs after Washington State and California. So we are number three. Don't ask me why. But, you know, there's no one central collection agency that keeps tabs on all this thing. But numerous researchers believe that, that, that this is the case. And right now, as we speak, they're having these hearings about UFOs. And there's one guy, I'm trying to think of what his name is. Grush, I think. And he testified today, this very day. He's from western Pennsylvania. He's the whistleblower. And he was in intelligence. He claims that he knows of retrieved uh, saucers and humanoids that, uh, that we have, that we have retrieved but we're not admitting to. So we'll see what happens. I mean, uh, as we speak, those hearings are going on. And I'm certainly, everybody's calling me. So are you listening to the hearings? So uh, one thing that I'm excited about is I'm working on my, my next book, and it's called, and, uh, and I don't know what you think of this, Erica, but it's called The Flying Saucer Esoteric, History's Most Amazing UFO Events. So I'm using the term flying saucers and UFOs as opposed to UAPs. And I'm close to finishing this. And um, beyond the frame, my publisher is excited. And I think this is going to, I think the timing is right. I mean, I think the world's ready for another book about flying saucers. And let's face it. Whether you believe in them or not, everybody has a theory about flying saucers. Yes, I believe or no, I don't. But with co-region hoodoo, what I wanted to do is I wanted to do for the co-region supernatural. I wanted to do for the Pennsylvania co-region what Stephen King did for the state of Maine. I wanted to bring some attention to our region because so many of those books 
are written about Lancaster and the hexes and the white witches and all that. And I said, wait a second, we have a tradition here, a culture that is just as rich and significant and, and important as what they have in Lancaster, maybe more so. So, you know, don't discount us. And I've had so many people tell me that they like the name Hoodoo, Coleridgean Hoodoo. And I introduced that term in my book, Somebody Else's Dream. And right at the end, I wanted to tie together all of the just strange, weird things, the anomalies between the song Timothy and the connection with Shepton and the cannibalism and all that. And there were a whole lot of other things. I mean, just weird things that happened. And I called that the Coal Region Hoodoo. And uh, I reread that just a, a couple of days ago. And I thought, you know, I got that right. I, mean, I was so proud of that thing. That's in uh, somebody else's dream. So the nicest thing is when you could maybe go back and sit in your easy chair and read some of the stuff that you've written and say, you know, that's not bad. I mean, I can, I can read this and enjoy it and not cringe, you know. Tell us what's going on, where you'll be on Saturday. Yeah, Saturday, a bunch of uh, authors are going to be in Freeland. It's called uh, Authors in the Park, and this will be the second year. And uh, we've been getting some good publicity. And last year, we had a bunch of people that came out to, to Freeland just to go and uh, take a look at the different authors and all kinds of genres. So I'll be there with Cole Region Hoodoo and my Shepton book and uh, a couple of other things. And it's, it's really nice, first of all, to have a venue where you could actually meet the public and show them some of your literary works. Because, you know, there's fewer and fewer opportunities to do that. And... Um, you know, the road of, you know, being an author is the same maybe today as it was 100 years ago. You know, you got to find your audience, your demographic, and do the work. And, and, and I believe that to be a successful author, you have to be a successful promoter. And I like that aspect. I mean, I like talking to the public. So we'll be at Freeland this coming Saturday. And then also, if anyone's interested, if they can't make that, they've won an autographed copy, they can contact me through my website of www.maximfurek.com, and it's M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K.com. Maxim Furek, writer, researcher, and journalist, speaking about his new book, Coal Region Hoodoo, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit, recently issued by Beyond the Fray Publishing in San Diego. Max Furek will take part in the second annual Authors in the Park event tomorrow, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., in the public park in Freeland, just outside Hazleton. Twenty or so writers will be on hand for signings and readings and more. For more information on Maxim Furek and his books, maximfurek.com, M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K dot com. Another writer you'll meet tomorrow in Freeland is John Yamras, who will probably have a table right next to his friend Max Furek. Each one of them has strong ties to this region, and those roots inform their work, though their books are very different indeed. As we heard, Furek opens his book by citing some of the films that influenced him growing up in the 50s and early 60s, The Day the Earth Stood Still, for example, with a soundtrack by composer Bernard Herrmann. But as a music journalist, he knows and loves music of his time as well, just like his friend John. One, two, three, four. 
ten o'clock Don't let go, don't let go Come on, baby, it's time to rock Here is a page from a memoir by John Yamras. I'm as much a child of the 60s as I am of the decade that came just before that, the decade in which I was born, the 50s, just 10 years and whole worlds apart. A good example is me and my sister. Just four years separated us, but it felt then and still feels like we're from two different generations. She's very definitely of the 50s, while I'm... At least I like to think I am. More Janice and Jimmy. As a kid, I drew more from Morrison, the Beatles, and Dylan the King than Buddy Holly or even Elvis, that soon-to-be-drug-addled, fat, and way out of touch with the times pretender to the throne who called himself the king. If you ask me, if you look back at those times, there's more of a king of rock and roll in Jerry Lee Lewis. I love you so Jerry Lee Lewis and that remarkable left hand of his than Elvis ever had. And Lewis held on to that style and rock and roll attitude right up until this very day, where I sit here writing this on this cloudy, rainy morning. That from a memoir titled RMA by John Yamras. RMA? Do you remember ever signing your high school yearbook, RMA? Remember me always? A perfect title for a memoir, but also a key of sorts to Yamras as a writer. We just heard him remembering his youthful days. And he speaks there of his sister, so he's thinking of his family in those few lines as well. We haven't mentioned that he's a prolific poet, too. He's written 29 volumes of poetry, in fact, with his most recent titled simply 24 Poems. John grew up in the Wyoming Valley in Swoyersville and now lives in the Reading area. And he returned to his home turf to talk with us about his life and work and to read for us. We have some highlights from that conversation now to introduce him to you before tomorrow's event, in case you don't know his work. And we'll share the full interview on Art Scene in the not-too-distant future. First things first, we wanted to know how John sees himself and his craft. I, I don't feel comfortable when people refer to me as a poet be, because I think it's limiting. Uh, I want to just see myself as a writer. In addition to my 29 books of poetry, I've written two really bad novels. I've written three memoirs about what it was like for me growing up in the valley, being a coal miner's son, and and I've written a children's book. So being called a poet kind of limits me. And the way I look at my poetry, it's kind of like looking out a window in a speeding train. And it's what you see through that window is a little snapshot, but there's just so much more going on outside that picture. And, and I want people to understand that, but in my writing, I don't want to try, I don't want to attempt to describe all that other stuff. I just want to show what's inside the frame and let the people decide what they want. You keep it spare. In, in recent years, people have finally picked up on that. And I'm being known, maybe pigeonholed, maybe labeled as a minimalist. But I accept that and I appreciate it. And I kind of like that because 
Poetry almost by definition is, is saying as much as you can in as few words as possible. And people, writers, try to overwrite. They try to show how good they are, how fancy they are, how glib they are, how articulate they are by saying too much and it ruins things. I try to keep things very simple. It's clear that you're a reader and you say you really resonate with the French author Marcel Proust and the way he explores memory in his work. You know, when I'm talking to people and even in my writings, a lot of my things begin with or at some point touch on me saying, I remember. And that's a lot of my writing is looking back. I'm always trying to move forward and look forward, but uh, the writing is, you know, you call on your own experiences. Well, let's connect two things then, memory and family. You suggest that maybe you wrote the memoir at the urging of your sister because, oh, I did. She, because she said she wanted to hear these stories, but she wanted to hear you tell them because of the way you speak. That was interesting. That, that book came about, my publisher at the time, he said, well, y- your poetry is getting into colleges. We're having sk- some success, and I was getting up in the world with my poetry. And he said, what we should do to get more readers on board is why don't you try writing a novel? I didn't have a novel in me at the time. When I told him that, he said, write some prose thing. And I swear to God, after we got done, this was email exchange. After we got done, I went down into my downstairs office and started writing, just writing about what it was like for me as a kid growing up in the valley. Two weeks later, I had this book finished, and there were very, very, very few editorial changes that we made except basically for punctuation and things like that. And with my background as a writer of poetry, not being a poet, but as a background in poetry, the book is kind of like a hybrid, a combination of prose and poetry. It's kind of like a poem with a thyroid condition. That's my way of describing the book. But for me, it meant a lot for me describing what growing up in the valley was like and what it meant to me. Well, so much of that has to do with your interaction or your observations of family. Let me jump in here. Okay. To show you how family and those early connections stay with you. They're like a favorite shirt. (laughs) You, You keep putting it on and you can't get rid of it. The first poem in my new book, the new book is called 24 Poems. The first poem in the new book, very short, but it's again about memory. And I'll, I'll read it now, if I may. It says, I remember the last time my mother combed my hair. I was standing in the kitchen with my friend Stephen. It was always Stephen, never Stevie or Steve. And we were getting ready to go back out to play. I don't remember how old I was. I just remember being sweaty and dirty. And I'd washed my face and got a drink. And I asked my mother to comb my hair. And I remember the way Stephen looked at me when she held the comb under the water and ran it through my hair. I looked at the floor. I heard the water running in the sink. I felt young and stupid and ashamed. The sink was cold against my skin, and there was something cooking on the stove. That was also the last time 
my mother knelt down and tied my shoes. Was that an experience that you had to work at to remember the details, or it was it was just like that? No, I can I can still feel the cold of the sink and that white porcelain with the with the chips and the little black showing through underneath the white. Uh, I could still remember all that, and uh, I I I like to think that's the strength of mine as a writer, my my ability to to recall those things. And people ask, you know, what's the subject of this book of yours or that book? And and I really have no subject other than myself. It's it's like Proust. They tell writers to write what they know, and all I know is, or all I'm attempting to know is me. At a bar in Memphis, an old man. I thought he was out. John Yamras, a native of the Wyoming Valley, speaking about his life and work and reading a poem from his new collection titled 24 Poems. You can connect with John on Facebook at facebook.com slash John, period, Yamras, Y-A-M-R-U-S. And that's facebook.com slash John dot Y-A-M-R-U-S. He has 29 collections of poems, many translated into other languages, and there's a new one on the way before the end of the year, and we'll surely talk with him again about that. We spoke with John Yamras and his friend Maxim Furek today in connection with an event tomorrow in Freeland, just outside of Hazleton. It's titled Artists in the Park, and it will involve 20 or so writers. They'll be on hand for signings and readings and more. There'll be a children's section and children's authors. The hours 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. And again, the public park in Freeland, the second annual Authors in the Park. And for more information about Maxine Furek, M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K dot com, MaxineFurek dot com, he will have on hand his new book, Coal Region Hoodoo, some of his past works, and he'll be able to talk with you about his new work that's almost finished, and that's on UFOs and the term he loves to use, flying saucers. And also on hand, John Yamras, and we have a chance to meet him and see a number of his books. It's a remarkable array, so you'll meet them both at the public park in Freeland tomorrow, and that's between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m., the second annual Authors in the Park.